Welcome to HBW Insights Over-the-Counter Podcast. I'm Hannah Daniel, HBW's U.S. health and wellness reporter, and I'll be your host for today's episode of Over-the-Counter. You'll also hear David Ridley, EU Senior Editor for HBW Insight, hosting other episodes of Over-the-Counter. Together, we explore the latest issues in consumer health and cosmetics across the U.S. and EU. We speak to industry experts and executives about market trends and hot-button issues within the OTC, dietary supplement, and cosmetics industries. In this episode, I speak to Michael Hufford, co-founder and CEO of Harm Reduction Therapeutics, a nonprofit based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, working to create an over-the-counter version of naloxone. Currently only offered via prescription or standing order at a pharmacy, naloxone is an opioid antagonist which can reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. Michael and I talk about the current status of this life-saving drug, how standing orders in pharmacies are more of a band-aid than a long-term solution, and the incentives for companies currently producing prescription naloxone to make the switch to OTC status, and why many of them may choose not to. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Michael Hufford, you are the CEO and co-founder of Harm Reduction Therapeutics. Can you tell me a little bit about the company and why you started it? Yeah, so Harm Reduction Therapeutics is a nonprofit pharmaceutical company. I started it with my colleague and uh, friend John Penny uh, back in 2017, really as a direct result of the FDA's call for someone to bring forward an over-the-counter or OTC uh, naloxone product to help with the ongoing opioid epidemic. And so we structured it as a 501c3 tax-exempt nonprofit so that we really could take the profit out of the equation because we were convinced that the key barriers to naloxone saving more lives is a combination of cost and access. And so the best way to address cost was to take profit out of the equation by running it as a nonprofit. And the best way to address um, access was to ensure it was available as an over-the-counter drug. And so we've been working on that for several years now and, um, and getting closer all the time to having a product ready to launch. Can you remind me and anyone who's listening about the current landscape of naloxone access as it stands right now? Yeah, sure. So let's just uh, back up. So naloxone, right, is a safe and effective opioid antagonist, right? Its, its sole effect is to dislodge um, opiates from uh, binding to the mu receptor, which is responsible for the respiratory depression, which in turn leads to death from overdose. So naloxone was originally approved by the FDA all the way back in 1971. It has been off patent since 1985 and broadly used uh, in in a number of of different both medical and harm reduction uh, applications for the benefits of public health really now for decades. In terms of the current landscape, you know, let's start when we started harm reduction therapeutics back in 2017. Um, Naloxone products are currently all prescription products. Uh, but it's a prescription with an important asterisk, which is that asterisk is uh, since 2017, um, all 50 states have enacted some form of standing orders. And so those standing orders vary sometimes dramatically by state, but in general, what they provide is some mechanism for a pharmacist to dispense naloxone without a prescription. That is usually the most senior medical person in the state basically is issued 
via legislation a, a, a prescription, if you will, for every resident of the state. And so that gets around the prescription requirement because technically as a resident of a state, when you walk into your local, say, CVS pharmacy and ask for naloxone, they kind of you know technically can check the box of having a prescription for you. So that, um, that really was always meant as a Band-Aid solution, and it really is a Band-Aid solution to the problem of the dramatic hemorrhaging of lives that continue unabated now with over 75,000 Americans losing their lives last year to opioid overdose. So while I think the data has shown quite conclusively that standing orders are wholly insufficient to address the unmet need when it comes to naloxone access, they do represent that asterisk, right? They, so technically prescription products, but there are standing orders so that you can typically access those products. Those will almost always be intranasal versions of the product. I guess the other thing I should say is naloxone is available in a variety of different forms, right? Um, there are glass vials of naloxone that are for intramuscular um, applications. So if you go to an emergency room um, or on an ambulance, they'll have glass vials of naloxone to help, to help with opioid reversals. But there's also intranasal formulations um, that allow uh, for delivery that way, as well as at least one auto-injector um, that is um, also available. Okay, thank you so much for giving the background um, of what naloxone is, how it works, and what the landscape looks like. So other than being prescription only, what are some of the barriers to access naloxone? Are there cost aspects? Are there socioeconomic aspects? Yeah, no, it's a, that's a great question. So in addition to the burden of the prescription, and again, to be clear, that's a burden, uh, not only because it does force you to interact with a pharmacist, uh, it will be then logged against health insurance if you have any, um, and then that will be in your medical record. Um, but it's also the case that harm reduction groups that today dispense by far the most naloxone that, that is used in successful opioid overdose reversals, none of those harm reduction organizations can use those standing orders to access bulk purchasing of naloxone. They still have to go through very archaic, very bureaucratic, and extraordinarily burdensome steps to access naloxone themselves. So that's another very non-trivial barrier because we know that more lives would be saved if cheap naloxone could be distributed or free naloxone could be distributed by these harm reduction groups and the standing orders completely fail to address that need as well. But to the point you raised, cost is a critical barrier today. So. Just to give you a sense, there have been a number of, there's a great uh, paper in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2016, and there have been some wonderful media um, uh, reports on this as well, that you know, markets do what markets do, which is as the demand for naloxone has increased, the price of the products have increased. And so a dollar glass vial of naloxone at the outset of the opioid epidemic will cost you 20 to $25 today. So a remarkable increase in price as the demand has gone up. Um, likewise, you know, the active ingredient, the naloxone itself in an intranasal sprayer costs about five cents. Um, but that sprayer is sold currently by Emergent Biosolutions in a two-pack for $140. Um, or in their, and I'm using air quotes here, discounted price of about $75 a box for certain qualifying um, purchasers. So the substantial markup on those products 
means that when you have precious public health dollars, which are always sparse, uh, to go around, your dollar doesn't go near as far, frankly, as it should for a drug that was originally approved in 1971 that's been off patent since 1985, but folks have used loopholes in our patent laws and generic drug statutes to basically carve out very high profit, high margin uh, products based on naloxone. Uh, the perhaps most famous example was the Evzio auto injector from Kaleo Pharmaceuticals that at one time was uh, trying to retail for about $4,500 for an auto injector of naloxone. So while, while that's a particularly egregious example, I would also argue that, you know, $140 for a two-pack box of a drug that, again, has been around for 50 years now um, does not meet the unmet need. And indeed, that's why you've seen folks like the FDA, the American Medical Association, bipartisan members of the Senate, as well as the CDC, the FDA current commissioner and past commissioners have all made urgent pleas for manufacturers to take their products over the counter. And to date, unfortunately, none have done so. So just to kind of recap, if an individual is interested in getting some naloxone, they're going to use a standing order. They go to the pharmacist. Talking to the pharmacist, you know, you might encounter some pushback there for somebody who, you know, has some morality problems with, um, with naloxone, which we can get into a little bit later. You might face backlash from your insurance provider. Can you clarify the insurance claim a little bit? Yeah, so, um, you know, exactly your point. And I would encourage you, if you're listening to this, one, you know, the U.S. Surgeon General has encouraged all Americans to carry naloxone. Um, I would encourage everyone to carry naloxone. I carry naloxone. All of our officers at Harm Reduction Therapeutics carry naloxone. Um, so one, I would encourage you to uh, try this for yourself. So if you do what I did, you go to a pharmacy, you'll find that a significant percentage of them do not stock it. So first you have to find it. Uh, so you go in and you find out, oh, in fact, they don't stock naloxone. Then you find one that does have naloxone. Very often there's um, just not awareness of standing orders. And so in my case, the first time I bought it, it, it took about 25 minutes for uh, the pharmacist to speak with their colleague and call them and kind of figure out what the mechanism was for the standing order. Um, if you pay out of pocket, you'll pay the full retail price. I've done that. If you bill it against your insurance, just know that that's on your medical records. So now um, every time I go to see my GP, I get screened for opioid use disorder because of the naloxone prescription. Now I can explain to the doctor what I'm doing and my nonprofit, and they're always very excited about that, and it's not an issue. But again, the you know a general person going in and having to explain that they do not have an opioid use disorder, right? That's another one of the downstream ramifications of, the, of that standing order. And again, I would just stress, Folks did not envision standing orders to be the solution. They really envisioned it to be an interim holdover until we got over-the-counter naloxone. But because none of the manufacturers to date have done that, we're left in this netherworld, almost like a counterfactual of like this horrible situation where the intention was to have OTC naloxone. We don't have OTC naloxone. So there's this reliance on the standing orders and the standing orders have all of these unintended consequences associated with them. Well, that's something I'm going to absolutely try. Um, I agree that, you know, after doing some of my own reporting on the current landscape of naloxone, I would absolutely be interested in carrying it around with me, but good things to think about. So 
going back to a little bit about what you all do at Harm Reduction Therapeutics, you have not produced naloxone as a prescription drug. So you would not be pursuing a prescription to over-the-counter switch when getting your product approved for over-the-counter status. So can you tell me the difference or what what the um, process is like for getting naloxone approved as a new drug versus a company that currently manufactures naloxone um, and wants to switch it from prescription to OTC status? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So you're right. Traditionally, like in the drug development world, folks are used to thinking about prescription to OTC switches, right? Where you have safety and efficacy has been well established. And then the sponsor is faced with the, um, the, the more typical hurdles associated with an OTC switch, which is making sure you have a drug facts label that's um, fully understood and comprehended by folks. Um, lay people understand how they diagnose the condition the, the product's to be used for. And then you run an actual use trial to show that in fact folks can um, use the drug as intended. So naloxone presents uh, as it does in so many areas, really a very special use case, right? So for um, an existing manufacturer trying to take it over the counter, they would have to do those same uh, studies with the caveat being that you are not gonna be forced to do an, an, an actual overdose study. Usually the proxy for that is, you know, finding a mannequin on a floor and seeing whether or not in an, in a kind of, again, in kind of air quotes, actual use situation, someone can open the box, take out your package, understand how to, how to use the product and successfully administer it to the mannequin. Because again, there's no question about naloxone's efficacy and safety. The only issue is can lay people understand when and how to use the product, right? So that's the kind of traditional switch scenario. For harm reduction therapeutics, you're absolutely right. We did not have a prescription naloxone product. We licensed an intranasal formulation that's actually part of a uh, widely used product in Europe called Nixoid. So we licensed that formulation. We reformulated it to a higher dose strength to a three milligram formulation versus its current two milligram formulation. But our path forward to approval, so we're using the 505B2 pathway. And so in addition to the steps that I just talked about, making sure you have good label comprehension and that people can actually use the product correctly, you also have to do a single bioavail- a relative bioavailability study. Basically, you have to show that your absorption is at least as quick as the FDA reference comparator product. So for us, we chose the 0.4 milligram intramuscular formulation of naloxone, and much as other naloxone manufacturers have done, then do a a relative bioavailability study versus that 0.4 milligram naloxone. So that's what we did. We we issued a press release uh, not too long ago about our successful uh, phase one relative bioavailability trial. So we did um, have a robust result. We clearly achieved um, relative bioavailability to the 0.4 milligram dose. And so now are rapidly moving forward, hope to submit our NDA uh, later this year and hopefully with a commercial launch in the first quarter of 2024. That's, uh, that's really interesting, or I guess it makes sense that you mentioned that study because that was the first naloxone story that I wrote for HBW Insight. So that study was actually how I got into the landscape of naloxone access. So I remember that very well, I wrote about it. It was very cool. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Over the Counter. Make sure to follow Pharma Intelligence on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts to get notified about the latest episodes. 
Also, don't forget to check out our HBW Insights publication at hbw.pharmaintelligence.informa.com for all of the latest health, beauty, and wellness news. Now, back to the interview. All right, so I'd like to circle back to the stigma that naloxone as a drug has because of its use as an opioid overdose antidote. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Look, there's a, there's a long history of naloxone distribution through harm reduction groups. And it's important that when you look at the social and political implications of harm reduction, right? I think we've come a long way. Naloxone for a time was considered like drug paraphernalia. And so simply having, not too long ago, in fact, simply having naloxone on you could be a, a criminal offense, believe it or not, because it was considered drug paraphernalia. Now, um, while, while personally I find that abhorrent and, and um, really bordering on the ridiculous, the fact is it was like that for a very long time, right? And that harm reduction does strike some people as, um, as I guess the argument must be one of, of sort of a slippery slope that by encouraging, um, uh, that by encouraging safe use of um, illicit drugs, you are somehow condoning it, right? Now, harm reduction folks, myself very much included, would be the first to tell you that, well, if you really care for someone, then you're gonna meet them where they're at, that no one can recover from an opioid use disorder who's dead. And so first and foremost, you have to keep people alive for the opportunity for them to recover, right? Um, that does not mean that there are not folks that are um, simply opposed on, on, on their own moral reasoning to um, harm reduction interventions, including naloxone. I am heartened that that is, I think, increasingly a very minority opinion. And that, again, when you look at folks really across the political spectrum um, who um, understand this issue and are involved in the public health, whether it be a host of different FDA commissioners, including Scott Gottlieb, was um, very much a proponent of OTC naloxone. So I think it just goes to show that you can have folks coming from a variety of different places on the political spectrum, but arrive that the moral, right, just, and ultimately the best thing for public health to do is to make naloxone as widely available as possible. That doesn't mean there won't always be a small group of folks that disagree and sometimes vehemently so. Um, I think it's a great case. I think it's a great example too, where let's not forget what the data show. So when you look at the data, the data show quite conclusively that naloxone access does not encourage more risky drug use, right? And again, just, just to make clear, Drugs are dangerous precisely because they are illicit, right? If, if, if drugs that, that are legal today, I think I just saw this example you know, um, on Twitter, you know, if, if caffeine were illicit today, you would have more lethal caffeine overdoses because you wouldn't know how much caffeine is in something, right? Um, so the extent to which drugs are illegal means that you don't know what their potency is, you don't know what they're contaminated with. And so someone that used a certain amount of a drug in the past might go use that exact same amount, but because there are no manufacturing controls, there's no quality controls whatsoever, you can overdose from a single use because of either the contaminants um, or it may contain you know, fentanyl, carfentanyl, it may contain a you know, super potent um, opioid analog. 
And so that all speaks to the fact that, um, that because the drug supply is illicit, it is fundamentally dangerous, and there's really no way for people to know uh, what's safe. And so as a result, they put their lives at risk each and every time they use. So going back to companies that currently manufacture OTC naloxone, what are the incentives for those companies to make the switch to an OTC pr product? And what are the incentives for those same companies to keep their products prescription only? Yeah, so good question. And um, so one, just to back up, no current manufacturers of naloxone make an OTC product, right? Everyone today is prescription only. Um, but, right, the CDC, the FDA, the American Medical Association, bipartisan members of the Senate, have all called for manufacturers to submit their over-the-counter um, product applications, right? Um, and look, insofar as I am not a member of any of those companies, um, I will just note that my response is, to a certain extent, um, my estimation of some of the dynamics involved. But because I'm not a member of those companies, I, you know, I, I can't comment directly on what deliberations they've had around taking the switch. I would say broadly, um, certainly some of the products, all the injection products, certainly the glass vials, right, I don't know what the path forward OTC would be there, right? Um, you, you know, traditionally you don't have um, products that require intramuscular injection as over-the-counter products with maybe the exception of the EpiPen and an auto-injector, but right by and large, I, I'm not sure there is a, a clear path that I'm aware of through the FDA for the, any of the glass vials uh, of naloxone to be taken over-the-counter, right? Um, so setting those aside for a moment, if you think of other manufacturers of intranasal products, and so in addition to Emergent Biosolutions with the branded product Narcan, there's also, they also now have an authorized generic uh, through Sandos, as well as Teva now is, uh, makes a generic version of intranasal naloxone. Uh, for all of them, you know, they would do what companies do, right, is, is, is take a um, hard financial look at the cost associated with the OTC switch process, and then look at what incremental revenues um, they would um, anticipate based on the product being available in that context, what they could charge for it, right? So um, this is, again, how cost is relevant. When you go to a consumer healthcare, you know, um, CVS or Walgreens, what have you, at some point, when the price becomes too expensive for a product, what happens? They put it behind the counter. And they do that for what I think in the industry is called evaporation, right, is the euphemism for shoplifting. That, so to prevent those uh, items from walking out the door, right, without being purchased. Um, so I think one problem is if you look at uh, Narcan today, the, uh, again, kind of in quotes, discounted price of $75, let's imagine that they were to take that forward and offer it at that price and not the 140 That would still represent a very expensive consumer healthcare product. And ironically, I would suggest and predict that most stores would carry it behind the counter because it was so expensive, right? So once again, what are you left with? You're left with interacting with the pharmacist. Now, again, it may not be charged to your insurance, what happens? Have you um, currently today, right? Folks like Emergent generate hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue uh, from billing insurance for naloxone. 
um, uh, for their product. And so I think uh, there would be a calculus, right, of, of the costs associated with the switch, the costs of, of making it available that way, which, you know, if you're a prescription pharma company, you don't have a OTC group, right? So you would have to build all that out or contract with folks. And so, again, as long as profit is the key driver in your fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, I understand why on the hard nuts and bolts of it, if, if you just take a financial perspective, I can imagine that the switch did not make really compelling sense to those folks. And again, I think part of the beauty of, of harm reduction therapeutics, and you know, we're not alone in this regard, I should note. Folks like Civica RX, Medicines 360, and others have nonprofit pharma models where they're meeting critical unmet needs by helping take profit out of the equation to meet these needs that are otherwise not being met in the, in the private marketplace today. So we're certainly not alone in that regard, but I think we're unique in focusing on the lock zone, but by um, making it nonprofit, um, we are, I'm perfectly happy to give away 100% of our product for free, right? Um, I will sell it at the lowest possible price that just lets us continue to manufacture it. And the extent to which we're successful in fundraising and I can offset the cost of manufacturing, we'll give it all away for free. Right, because that's the unmet need. You have 75,000 Americans died last year of opioid overdose when there is a safe and effective reversal drug that's not been made over the counter because the financial incentives don't align to make it so. And so Harm Reduction Therapeutics was trying to get that alignment so that if your mission is to save lives and to sell at the lowest possible price, that's why we formed Harm Reduction Therapeutics as a nonprofit to pursue OTC naloxone for just that reason. Yeah, that's incredibly admirable. And again, as you said, understandable why there is less incentive for these uh, companies to pursue a switch, but also makes sense why you have some groups, including yours and the other ones that you mentioned, that are stepping into the hard production spaces. I think it, it just continues to be enormously frustrating that folks haven't been able to look beyond the bottom line and switch these products more quickly given that the opioid epidemic now is, uh, you know, many years old at this point. Yeah, it's an incredibly devastating um, epidemic. No, absolutely. And so I, I, I'd written an op-ed with uh, uh, Don Burke, from, who is the head of public health at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and, and, and we wrote this op-ed about how, you know, fentanyl potency or opioid potency has gone through the roof over the past years and the price has plummeted. Naloxone has stayed constant and the price has skyrocketed. So, you know, we've, we've completely failed to keep up with the illicit market, right? The illicit market's innovated. They have better distribution of, of their product now. You know, you can access the product every bit as easy as coffee um, and it costs a fraction, right, um, of what it used to and its potency is through the roof. And with naloxone, you know, we still can't get it over the counter. It's just enormously frustrating. Well, thank you to, you know, yourself, your staff, the people you work with for working to make naloxone more accessible. Um, as, as we've talked about it, it's incredibly necessary. And thank you for taking the time to speak to me this afternoon um, and give your insight and expertise about this topic. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Over the Counter is a podcast by Informa Pharmaceutical Insights. 
If you'd like to learn more about this topic, check out HBW Insights. There you can find any articles that we mentioned in the podcast and other articles on the subject. This podcast and others by Informa Pharma Intelligence are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and Spotify Podcasts. So make sure to follow to get the latest updates on when new podcasts are published. Thank you again for listening and be on the lookout for more over-the-counter episodes.